fine design that sets it apart from the lookalike. Business is built on data, facts, and figures. It's also made up of some of the most fascinating stories the world has known. What makes business tick? What are the stories we can find in their failures and victories? Get ready to find out what some of today's leaders were thinking right now on Business Disrupted. Here is your host, Ted Gavin. Welcome to Business Disrupted. Today is the day we honor the legacy of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. In a moment of past becoming prologue, Dr. King famously said of voting rights, I think the tragedy is that we have a Congress with a Senate that has a minority of misguided senators who will use the filibuster to keep the majority of people from even voting. Dr. King said this at a U.S. Information Agency news conference in 1963. In that time, to filibuster a bill, a senator or senators had to keep control of the floor, giving rise to popular perceptions of the filibuster as someone standing all night in the well of the Senate and reading cookbooks or the phone book or Ted Cruz trying to work his way through reading Green Eggs and Ham for C-SPAN and Fox News. It would be a mistake to say that we haven't evolved since 1963, though. Sure, we still have a minority of senators who are trying to prevent passage of the Freedom to Vote Act and the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act, the proposed laws that seek to restore the 1965 Voting Rights Act and undo the myriad restrictions that 21 state legislatures have put into place in response to the big lie, the falsehood that but for widespread voter fraud, Donald Trump should have won re-election. So in that regard, the last 60 years have seen us go 360 degrees around those issues. But now they don't have to hold the floor to do it. Now, to filibuster a bill, you need only one senator to say that he won't vote to end debate, and the result is you don't even have the debate. The result is gridlock, minority control of the Senate, and an electorate that is uninformed about basic facts of proposed legislation. The result is that senators representing less than 17% of the U.S. population can decide what legislation can even be debated, let alone voted upon. To help us make sense of all this, we're joined by former U.S. Senator Al Franken, host of the Al Franken Podcast. Senator, thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Ted. My pleasure. So let's start with the actual bills that are at the heart of the current Senate gridlock. We have what started in the House at the beginning of the current session as the For the People Act, and and that now exists as the Freedom to Vote Act and the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act, which I think have now been recombined into the John Lewis Freedom to Vote Act. What are the things that we're talking about in these bills? Well, the, John Lewis is restoring preclearance. Uh, basically, part of the 1965 Voting Rights Act said that the uh, Justice Department, uh, the U.S. Justice Department, uh, had to review any changes that certain states and counties uh, who had a, a history of discrimination and voter suppression uh, that the Justice Department had to okay any changes. And uh, then in 2013, in Shelby County, uh, Supreme Court decision, a 5-4 vote, they got rid of preclearance. And uh, Roberts wrote uh, the uh, majority opinion. Uh, Ginsburg famously wrote that uh, it, what Roberts had said was uh, that uh, it had worked <laughs> and that uh, that there wasn't uh, discrimination. Now there wasn't voter suppression or discrimination. And uh, Justice Ginsburg said 
that that's like uh, if it's raining, uh, throwing away your umbrella. Because the umbrella has kept you dry getting, all this time. Because you're not getting wet. Right. And it's exactly what happened. And so pre-clearance went away. And right away, right away, um, in North Carolina, uh, they, they went to town. And um, in, in now, it, the, the uh, Justice Department didn't have to review it. So the only enforcement of, of this was the courts. But that takes time. So in the 2014 election, uh, the Fourth Circuit, after the election, said that the uh, North Carolina state legislature, the Republican state legislature, had targeted blacks with almost uh, uh, surgical precision hmm. and to suppress black votes. And so, uh, and, and other states and other uh, entities, uh, jurisdictions did that as well. And Ginsburg was clearly right. And uh, now we see uh, doubling down in the last, uh, uh, last several months where, I don't know, 20 some states have passed laws. Uh, and many of them like uh, like Georgia and Texas and Arizona and Florida states that are in play um, that are doing a number of things, Wisconsin, Michigan, that are uh, the state Republican state legislatures are passing this law laws that are basically suppressing deliberately suppressing votes, uh, targeting not just uh, people of color but um, young people like college kids in college um uh, just ur urban people poor people too uh and there's all kinds of we can go through the different kinds of things they're doing they're also doing some uh some laws that will affect the administration of the elections right. and you have to say legislatures really the ability to kind of overturn a result is and, very and, scary. And, yeah. and, and so these the, these two laws, re, or this one law, I guess. Well, um, that that's that's the Lewis John Lewis thing. Right. And the um, the Freedom to Vote Act, uh, they've been combined for um, a reason, which is uh, we want at least a debate on this. You were talking about the importance of debate. And there's some pretty arcane rule about if the House votes on something three times, the Senate has to debate it. <laughs> and, and so that's what they're doing. They're going to combine them. The House is going to take it up three times, and then we then there'll be a debate on it. And um, so one of the things that I've been working on and you know, it's very disappointing what happened on Thursday uh, in terms of the filibuster because we didn't get cinema and we didn't get uh, mansion is uh, modifying the filibuster, not ending it, but modifying it. Right. And so that is a talking filibuster. So those who are filibustering have to have to be on the floor and they can't do green eggs and ham. They, they have to be, 
what they're saying has to be germane. Right. Well, let's let me fill in a couple of gaps on the on the actual legislation. The the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act, the John Lewis half of the act, as you said, it it basically puts back it reinvigorates the Voting Rights Act of 1965. And, and, and can so, I interrupt you one? Yeah. Mitch McConnell voted for that. Well, and so did 15 other Republicans in yeah. 2006. Yes. And yes. so, uh, and and now he, when he gets on the floor and it just, he completely contradicts himself. Right. And he voted for that. Well, and, so. and interestingly, um, I read today the Voting Rights Act had been reauthorized four times, and each time it's reauthorized, the president has to sign it. And each of those four presidents were Republican presidents, most yes. recently George W. Bush. And, and and what that law does is it makes it illegal to put in place voting rules that discriminate on the basis of race, language, or ethnicity, and it allows voters to challenge discriminatory laws. That's all it does. The And, and, and that's where preclearance came. If a state that had a history under the, the, the post-Reconstruction South of, in, of infringing the rights or limiting the rights of people to vote, then they had to get pre-clearance. And that pre-clearance isn't as ominous as it sounds because the Department of Justice approved more than 99% of submissions made when pre-clearance was in effect. So it, it really was the, 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 the scant minority of, of voting regulations that triggered a problem with the Department of Justice under the VRA. The Freedom to Vote Act, on the other hand, was structured to deal with the, the restrictions that 21 states put in place after the 2020 election, which include limiting the amount of, uh, of, of mail-in voting, absentee voting, drop boxes. It would make election day a federal holiday. It would require certain types of access to non-in-person voting for the population it would deal with the long lines. It would it would undo a lot of the restrictions that have already been put into place by by these 21 different state legislatures. And and so that's what we're talking about. We're talking about people being able to have water while they're standing in line all afternoon because Georgia or Texas or one of these other states decided, oh, we're only going to limit the we're only going to have half the number of polling places that we used to have in the poor communities or we're only going to put ballot drop boxes in white communities or you well they don't do that but for example drop boxes like in texas the thing of texas you can only have one drop box per county right so (laughs) so texas has some really big counties is it yeah i can't remember what the name of the county is it's not houston county but it 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 uh, has like four and a half million people in it there is a county in texas that has less than 100 people yeah. and <laughs> but they each gonna have one drop right <laughs> and, and and in uh, texas a county that has less than 100 people could also be you know 400 square miles i think it's loving county mm. but they might have gone over 100 now they may have had a boom but the point is is that obviously that makes it harder for people in urban areas to vote and who are they and it makes it easier you know relative to uh that to urban areas rural areas which are predominantly uh republican have have an easy have easier access to a drop box and and so the freedom to vote act there's a um, million of these by the way 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and so the Freedom to Vote Act required a minimum of 15 days for early voting. It required states to accept mail-in ballots. Uh, it would set up national standards for voter identification. It would establish protections for election officials against intimidation by partisan poll watchers. And it would require states to use voting systems with a verifiable paper trail. If, if the thing you're worried about is rampant voter fraud, all of these things are good in stopping voter fraud. And so, of course, the, the opponents to these bills talk about how it's a massive infringement on states' rights and that the federal government is trying to control the election and use taxpayer dollars to do all these things. And, and, and there really hasn't been a good response and, and that kind of gets back to, I guess, problem number one, which is the side that is trying to put forward this legislation, Where wh what's the problem with messaging around this issue? We're just bad at messaging. Um, Democrats are just bad at messaging. All our bumper stickers end with continued on next bumper sticker. <laughs> yeah. Um, we, we just are not good at this. Um, in Build Back Better, the messaging on that has been terrible because we should just been talking about what's in it, the provisions that are in it. Right. Uh, universal pre-K, child care, um, you know, prescription drugs, uh, uh, lowering the costs of those. A whole bunch of things that everybody likes, <laughs> you yeah. know. Bridges not and falling down while you're on that. that. And, they just talk about is it is it three point five trillion or is it one point five trillion, and it, I mean this is partly the fault of the media, which they like, you know, they just like reporting on horse race and ball game, you know, the inside baseball. Right. Um, but we should have been talking about the individual pieces of that. I also think that. Um, you know, I, I'm, I'm not there now. I do talk to some of my former colleagues. It feels to me like um, the, the progressives or the Democrats, just the other Democrats, didn't really take Manchin as seriously as they should have until he went on Fox and made his announcement. And that was – we should have – Ideally, you would have gotten this done like in October. And so that people could see these things like subsidizing daycare. Uh, give it, in Europe, the average European country subsidizes per child um, daycare to the $14,000 per child. We, on average, child $500. And so, and, and this is so people can work, you know, we, uh, empl employers now need people to work right? and people want to work, but they can't afford the daycare and they want to also make sure that they can leave their, their child with uh, a place, you know, where their kid's safe and in a nurturing environment. Right. I, it's we should have been talking about the the provisions in the bill and not the not the uh, inside baseball. I mean, it, 
it used to be a, presu- a, po- a, a popular presumption that if there was a big bill and there was a holdout senator, there would be a conversation between the leader of the party or the leader of the caucus that was advancing the bill and the holdout. And, and that conversation would probably boil down to what do you want for your state to get this done? Or you write the bill. <laughs> yeah, or you, or you put your name on it. Well, I mean, he, he's actually did put his name. I mean, he helped write uh, the Freedom of the Vote Act. Manchin did. Right. And he still won't modify the filibuster. But uh, Build Back Better is all we, we need. just need 50. We don't need to change the filibuster. Rules. Right. So at a certain point, I mean, again, I'm not there. Uh, but again, at a certain point, I kind of believe that Harry would have said, okay, write the bill that you'll vote for. Tell, show it to me, <laughs> you know, and, and you know, uh, give, him, give him 90% of that and negotiate with that. But, um, and it would have been nice to, to do it much earlier so that some of these programs could work so people could get the benefits of them. Right. As it is, the child tax credit is expired. Right. And uh, that's, that's terrible. Oh, that's, and that, and that's the aspect of the bill that lifted a huge amount of the population out of poverty. Yeah. Like for six months, poverty, it reduced it. I think they say between 30 and 40% or something. And, um, who doesn't want to do that? <laughs> and, and, Who doesn't and want to reduce childhood poverty? Well, and, and Manchin's objection to that, if I'm paraphrasing correctly, is that he was he was worried that they were, it was going to be abused. People were going to get the money and use it on something that they shouldn't be using it on. Well, he he, I think his main objection was that he felt that it, it went people who were making a good middle-class living or uh, getting, uh, getting, getting that. And uh, so I think he wanted, it's, it's means tested anyway, just, uh, and I'm sure this could have, ha- this could have easily been negotiated because boy, oh boy, they need this in West Virginia as much as any place. And, you know, he just didn't want people making, I don't know what, where he drew the line, but you know, in, in West Virginia, um, you, you don't have to make as much money as you do in New York city. Right. And, uh, but I, I don't know where he wanted to draw the line, whether it was a hundred thousand, 125,000, 75,000. I don't know where he wanted to draw the line on this, but that again was subject to negotiation or you could phase it out and get less money at, at those levels, there, there are ways to deal with that. And you mentioned that one of the one of the ways to to address that would have been engaging with the senators who are who are articulating a problem with the legislation much earlier in the process. Mitt Romney um, said today that he never heard from the White House on either of the Voting Rights Acts. Is is this is is this sort of a pernicious problem that the White House is not engaging? Well, um, I, I think, unfortunately, President Biden came 
kind of the Voting Rights Act a little late uh, in terms of, and you could argue that he could have gotten some Republican votes, and maybe uh, Romney would have been, you know, one of two. Right. <laughs> McConnell, you know, exerts discipline, and boy, he did not want this because it's this is about republicans winning and and him being majority leader and eventually electing maybe donald trump again right i, I mean, mean you'd you'd have if you're going to try and politic the solution you'd have to go for the ones who have already announced their retirement and they did so they don't care about the the influence that can be wielded against them or the ones that are so safe that they that whatever the majority leader thinks doesn't matter a minority leader. I mean, yeah, the minority leader. Excuse me. Uh, yeah, you know, it's interesting. I I kind of wonder um, about some of these guys who are retiring or women who are retiring, and why they don't uh, speak out more. And I think it's like they want to go to dinner in their state. And not get yelled at <laughs> after they retire. I don't. I don't know what it is, but it's it's shocking how many of my uh, former Republican colleagues have refused to say, "Okay, look, the election wasn't stolen." It took rounds until from South Dakota till like last week. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say about ten days ago. <laughs> yeah, and. Uh, it's it's very scary now and this was this is an existential threat uh and these you know we we need to keep this, this the importance of 22 in terms of we we better win the governor's races in states like uh wisconsin and michigan and pennsylvania because otherwise they have Republican state legislatures. And um, if they have Republican governors, then they can do what Georgia has been doing in Texas, et cetera. Right. Well, we were, we, we were starting to talk about the filibuster, which is the means by which the minority is able to keep anything happening in the Senate. Um, and, and just a little background on the filibuster for our listeners, the, the filibuster is not in the Constitution. Constitution requires a supermajority vote in the Senate for only three things, approving treaties, overriding presidential vetoes, and convicting for impeachment. Does not require it to pass legislation. In fact, there's an argument that has been made that the filibuster is unconstitutional because Article 1, Section 5 of the Constitution states that a majority of each house shall constitute a quorum to do business. I don't know if I buy that because just showing up and talking about stuff is doing business, not passing legislation, but... People who say that the filibuster needs to stay um, say that it was part of the original intent behind how the Senate would function. And that's untrue. The framers and founders never included yeah. the filibuster. In fact, it, it, the, the first step in doing away with the filibuster was Vice President Aaron Burr presiding over uh, the Senate uh, after he had been indicted for killing Alexander Hamilton. Uh, but before he fled prosecution and, uh, and tried to overturn the government, he convinced the Senate to do away with the previous question motion, which is the means by which the House of Representatives simply says by majority vote, we're gonna, we're gonna advance a bill. 
And for reasons lost to history, the Senate decided, yeah, let's do that. And that began, began to erode the, the majority rule structure of the Senate. So when people talk about the filibuster, it's important to remember this is only a rule in the Senate and it, it, rules can be changed. You, you don't, yep. you don't need a constitutional amendment. It's been changed a lot. And, yeah. you know, ironically, in I think it was 76, they changed the rules on the filibuster, trying to uh, make it easier uh, to break a filibuster, but actually made it harder. Let me explain this. Uh, before that, it had been, you needed two-thirds present and voting, right? Now, two-thirds present and voting is not two-thirds of 100. It's two-thirds of those present and voting, unless right. there are 100 present and voting. Two-thirds of who shows up. Yeah. And um, as it is right now, the way the filibuster works is because of this, that no Republicans have to show up. One has to just object to Sam filibustering. And then they don't really have to vote. I mean, I guess one has to show up. Right. <laughs> and, but um, it, it, it's uh, the, the, you know, Mitch McConnell really ruined the Senate um, when Obama got elected before he was sworn in. Uh, he, McConnell went to his that meeting of his caucus and said, we're going to, uh, our goal is to make Obama's a one-term presidency. And they just did everything they could to make it difficult for him, including filibustering more uh, executive nominees than had been, than had been uh, filibustered in the entire previous history of the country. And, and that, that gave rise to a number of decisions which kind of sent the, the chamber down the slippery slope to where we are today. Um, I don't want to get too deeply into that because we've got a break coming up in about a minute. So I will say that when we come back, we're going to talk about your plan, uh, your ideas for filibuster reform that preserves the intent. And, uh, and we'll go from there. We're talking with former U.S. Senator Al Franken. If you have questions, tweet them to us at B-I-Z Disrupted or email them to comments at disrupted.business. Al Franken is the only former U.S. Senator currently on tour. Tour has been extended, starting up again on February 18th in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. You can find tickets and show dates at alfranken.com. And here's some news about a former guest on the show. Molly Bloom, subject of the feature film Molly's Game, has a new podcast. Her show Torched is a podcast about the heat of competition. In season one, Molly will tell stories of scandal, controversy, and redemption on the biggest world stage, the Olympics. Download and listen to Torched wherever you get your podcasts. We're going to take a short break. We'll be back right after some messages. Your favorite Voice America Talk Radio Network shows and hosts are in your car, outdoors, and wherever you need them to be. Listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. 
Gavin Solmanese is the experienced leader for complex financial matters, restructuring, and litigation consulting. Whatever your situation, we have the ability and know-how to restore troubled companies to profitability and growth. We've successfully completed financial advisory engagements for hundreds of companies that have gone on to renewed health and success. No matter the size or complexity of the case, our clients always work directly with senior professionals and receive exceptional work product. We know that asking the right questions is always the first step in defining the true problem. Generating alternative solutions and finding a clear path forward is what we do. To us, it's all about results. What you do next is what counts. When there are tough decisions and hard choices to make, you need smart, strategic people beside you. Choose the team who never stops working until your problem, dispute, or financial crisis is resolved. Visit Gavin Solmanese at GavinSolmanese.com or call us at 302-655-8997. We hear it and read about it every day in the news. America is heading over a fiscal cliff. Home prices are still receding and unemployment growing. How can you preserve and increase your wealth in this kind of economy? Tune in to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with host Jay Taylor. Jay will explain the decline of our monetary system and the economy and will give you winning investment ideas and the tools to protect and increase your wealth. Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor can be heard Tuesdays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, 12 noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. You are listening to Business Disrupted. To reach our program today, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to contact at disrupted.business. Now, back to the show. Welcome back. If you have questions, tweet them to us at BIZ Disrupted or email them to comments at disrupted.business. We're talking with former Senator Al Franken about the business of getting anything done in the Senate pertaining to voting rights. Senator, we were talking a little bit about the filibuster, and you mentioned earlier that that you have some thoughts about filibuster reform that preserves the the rule but makes it makes the chamber more effective. Well, I th yes, I think it does. Um, it's a modification. Uh, Norm Ornstein and I have been uh, kind of working on this for a long time, like, I don't know, 12 years or something, maybe 11. The, my first week in the Senate, no, I think 12. Uh, my first week in the Senate, uh, on Thursday, you take the last vote of the week and you do it in the uh, early evening, late afternoon, early evening, and then you go from the chamber down to the subway level and you get on the subway and then you go to your, then you go home. I mean, when you, when I say you go home, you fly back to your state. Um, so this is my first week and 
I, I didn't realize that uh, Jim Bunning was just the meanest, crabbiest <laughs> guy in the world. And so I, I say to him as we're getting on the subway, I say to him, uh, Jim, have a, have a great weekend. I'll see you on, on Monday. And he just went, I don't have to be here on Monday. It's a cloture vote. And what he meant was, is that it was a cloture vote and it, the burden was on us. We needed 60 to, to do clot to, uh, for cloture, which means ending a filibuster. At the time we only had 59. I was the 60th, but Teddy, Kennedy was sick and was in Hyannisport. So I, and I thought, why do we have to have 60 <laughs> and why don't they have to have 41? Right. You know, so I talked to Norm Morenstein about that. And so we've been working on this. And so that's part of this, which is they have to show up. 41 of them have to be on the floor. Um, they have to, it's a talking filibuster. They have to talk. They have to debate, which is good because there's not enough debate. Um, but they, they can't, both. you mentioned earlier, they can't just debate. They can't debate by reading a cookbook. They actually have to debate in, in a manner that is germane to the issue at hand. Exactly. And which is good. I mean, I think American people would love to see a debate on voting rights. And I think that's, Hopefully, what we're going to have, because of this this uh, rule about the House taking up something three times, uh, has to be debated on the Senate floor. So, uh, what we're talking about is forty-one have to show up. They have to keep forty-one there anytime for any time a vote is called. They don't have to be on the floor, but they have to be there in ten minutes. So they can't go. They can't go anywhere. They have to. They have to stay in their office, or and um, they need the forty-one. Right. If they don't have the forty-one, it's over. Um, so this would, I think, it would do a number of things. First of all, I actually think there'd be more bipartisanship because this means that to filibuster, you'd have to pay a price. So in this case. Uh, oh, I, I, I'm sorry, I, I'm interrupting myself, but I was starting to talk about what happened in 76. Right. And this is, is part of this, and I'm sorry that it's complicated and I'm going a little bit in circles. But so in 76, instead of when, when, when it was um, six, 66 or two thirds right. president voting, they changed it to 60. Right. And that so the Republicans don't really have to show up. We just need to get the sixty. That's why, hence uh, Bunning. So, well, we we said the burden needs to be on those filibustering, and because of that, they'd be less likely to filibuster. And but when they did filibuster, they'd tie up all this time on the floor, and the majority wa wants to use that time to do stuff. So it would actually, I think, create more bipartisanship and more working together and making compromises than the current system, which is right now, there's no reason for Republicans to even 
bother. And all they have to do is say, I have Jack, we have a filibuster, and then they don't have to even show up. You you mentioned the, uh, the, the filibuster preventing things from getting done. That was one of the original reasons for filibustering you know it it it, it filibusters started to to increase in number uh, in the eve of the civil war and then they really blossomed after the civil war but the whole issue behind the filibuster at that time was that the minority was trying to stall legislation so as to put the majority's priorities at risk so essentially the message was majority the longer you waste on this bill that we're filibustering the less time you're going to have to get other stuff done so why don't we all just move along Right. And, and, so and, hence, hence, if they had to pay a price to do it, they would be more willing to compromise. And also Democrats or the majority would be more willing to compromise because they want to get business done. Right. And and, and then you mentioned the, the, the mid-70s change in, in the supermajority requirement. Um, and then you, you also alluded to the, the logjam in Obama administration nominees. And that takes us to 2013 and and the second go around at the nuclear option when right. the, the Democratic majority in the Senate um, eliminated cloture for non-Supreme Court judicial nominees. So judges well, who are not Supreme any, Court judges. Any, uh, any uh, executive presidential nominations. Other than so, the Supreme Court. So executive, you know, um, other than the Supreme Court. Right. And, you know, a lot of us wanted to have do a gang of 14, which is what they did in what was that? What year was that? 2005 or something yeah. when we were filibustering Republican judges and they made a deal where enough Republicans, and enough Democrats got together to agree to um, uh pass through Bush nominees, except for ext extreme examples. Right. And that's what we're kind of asking them to do, but they wouldn't do it. So. And, and, and so we, we shoot forward 10 years and you have Republican control of the Senate starting in 2015. And. Point, and yeah. And, 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 and that changed to uh, massive changes in Senate procedural rules around nominees, including elimination of the blue card. So a, a home state Senator could no blue longer slip the or blue, blue slip. Um, so a home state Senator could no longer kind of pocket veto a nomination of a judge in their state. Yeah. Um, and that's, that's a big deal. Um, it, it, this really, this is complicated again, but basically if a federal judge uh, was a circuit court judge was nominated for your seat in a circuit. So the Minnesota seat, we had one of these, David Strauss, who I was against. Um, you could not hand in your blue slip. And the, this has gone on for a hundred years that would block the president's nominee from being seated. But what you would do is and I, I did this with, with a number of judges, I would just say to the administration, to, to the Trump, you know, normally what you do is say, okay, I'm not, your guy's too extreme, but I'll approve a Republican because you're a Republican president. 
and uh, just, uh, you know, just I'll put a committee together in Minnesota, uh, jurists and lawyers who are very well respected, and they will pick a couple of choices to who are Republicans, but who are really well respected. And instead, what they did was they got rid of the blue slip, even though Grassley had said he wouldn't do that, but he did. Right. He broke his word. And they would just, because of that, they picked very extreme judges and many just not qualified. And uh, that's, that's never going to, I mean, the Republicans now don't have the blue slip. So I don't think we're going to abuse it. I don't think we're, <laughs> we're uh, Biden's benign nutcase judges, but <laughs> they, right. they really did uh, appoint a lot of people that were very marginal. And, and yeah. And by the same token, though, under the Obama administration, when there was a vacancy on the federal district court in Wisconsin, for example, each of the two senators who were from split parties, the Ron Johnson, a Republican, Tammy Baldwin, a Democrat, they each had committees of, of local attorneys and, and, and those committees had a consensus nominee and that nominee or a few consensus nominees. And they were both given to the white house and one was picked and went before the Senate and was confirmed. So the process. Right. And, and what that does is, that means that the federal bench is full of people who are not extreme, you know, who are competent and fair and well-respected as right. opposed to what we have now. And we're never going to get that back in, in that genie back in the bottle. And it, it's, and so this has really hurt the federal judiciary. Right. And, and, and so this changing in rules, particularly around the filibuster, you know, there, the filibuster has eroded. There have been plenty of exceptions carved out over what can and can't be filibustered. Uh, and this has happened during a period of time when, since 1917, when, the, when Senate Rule 22 that provides for the filibuster was enacted, there have been about 2,000 filibusters. Half of them have been in the last 12 years. And between the late 60s and 2014, the Senate has created 161 exceptions for what, ha what has to be filibustered. So, you know, you start with, uh, with reconciliation issues and you end with now all of a sudden executive appointments and Supreme Court judges don't have to be filibustered. Well, you also so, just had, um, they went past, uh, on the, net, the debt ceiling. Right. They just did that. And, and uh, I noticed that cinema went, went ahead with that. So, so right now we have a situation in in the country, and this this plays into discussions about the electoral college as well. You have senators representing a Democrat identifying popular or Demo Democratic senators represent forty one thousand, almost forty two thousand, or excuse me, forty two million more people than the Republican senators. So we have a total population of 330 million people in this country. 142 are, 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 are living in places that are represented by Republican senators. 184 are living in places that are represented by Democrat senators. So 
a lot of people use this as an example, the people of Wyoming end up having four times the voting power of the people in California, because each state, no matter what its size, gets two senators. But the way this plays out is that while the Electoral College and the Senate are both designed to protect the power of small states, it, it, it also protects the power of large states with nobody living in them. And, and that's kind of what has happened here. You know, when you look at an election map of a presidential election, you see a lot of really big concentrations of population around the coasts and then a, a big sea of nothing in the middle. And, and so you've got a lot of senators representing the big sea of nothing in the middle and the people, the, the population concentrations at the coasts, those states each have the same representation in the Senate. And so what we end up with is minority rule under the current filibuster scheme. Is that a fair statement? Yeah, I mean, this is the Constitution. Uh, Oops, sorry about that. On the Electoral College, um, uh, I've been a big champion of the National Popular Vote uh, Vote Interstate Compact. Yeah. Uh, This is also a little bit complicated, but basically uh, states and and uh, 15 states have signed on to this and dc and between them they have 195 electors right. and when the states that sign on to this have 270 electoral votes it it is triggered and basically those states are by law uh, committed to giving their electors not to the winner of the popular vote in their state but to the winner of the national popular vote. So, and it's, you know, most people think you have to change the constitution to do this, but you don't. Right. Well, and and, right, because states can enter into compacts between states, which is what this is. Yeah. Um, And there's a lot, a lot of interstate compact. Minnesota belongs to the Great Lakes interstate compact. Um, And this is, uh, yeah, this is, we're getting there. It just, you know, it would have been nice to pick up the Minnesota state legislature. We would have got the trifecta and had it done, you know, it's, but it's been inexorably headed that way. Well, and, and, and this is a huge issue, um, particularly for the current Senate minority because Republican presidential candidates have won the national popular vote once in the last 32 years. Yeah. Now, um, there is one thing we can do. This would help the Senate and also the Electoral College. It's just uh, divide California into eight states. How and does California feel about that? I don't know. Uh, but uh, they'd, they'd have, um, let's say, they'd, they'd have uh, 12 more senators. No, no, uh, no 14, 14 more senators. Yeah. Uh, so that would enhance their power. Also, um, and you could gerrymander that beautifully so that every <laughs> every state was like 60% Democrat. Right. <laughs> right. And, and, and it looked of, very and, odd. I was going to say, and one stretched from San Francisco to Oregon. Yeah, I mean, it would, uh, you can do it. <laughs> it would really look ugly, though. 
Well, and, and um, I was going to say, and this this coming after the Ohio Supreme Court struck down the gerrymandered Republican redistricting maps for yeah, being too that extreme. Was the, uh, that was the Ohio's, uh, but this is about creating states. That's right. different than, um, <laughs> it's a little different. So uh, I think that would be that'd be a real kick in the butt, and then <laughs> and Puerto Rico and DC. You know, you can correct this. There is a way to correct it. Right. I, but I, uh, I think I've told you this. That my, as long as we're doing that, just to be perverse, uh, after uh, splitting California in eight states, that you would uh, just for just to get them, you divide Rhode Island into two. <laughs> half of Providence and half of the state and the other half of Providence and the other half of the state? Uh, probably split Providence in half. You want to make sure that it's Democrat. Right. That both. <laughs> it, <laughs> and, it, uh, it'd be yeah. interesting to see how the line is drawn up the Narragansett Bay. Yeah, I mean, uh, so that would be just like, what are you doing? <laughs> like, we just, just the just for the hell of it, we're making Rhode Island two states. <laughs> you know, I, I look. Because I think we can, Mitch. There's, there is a case. There's a case to be made that you know you could make Martha's Vineyard its own state. That'd be solidly Democrat. Um, you could probably put much of Western Massachusetts and Nantucket in a state together, even though they're not even remotely close to each other. That would isolate some <laughs> things off. Yeah, you know, it, it, you. We, we always think that the Republicans will just do anything. That would be like, they'd go, what? But, but <laughs> Al, you raised well, an excellent you point. Well, you do anything. You, you wouldn't, wouldn't take up Merrick Garland. So we're going to make Rhode Island two states. So so you, you bring up a good point. So, so this, this mechanism by which they're going to force debate on these voting rights bills, even though cloture isn't having the debate, it's ending the debate and proceeding to a vote on the bill. So they can have the debate, but they can't get to cloture. So if they're going to, for, if they're going to try and force the debate to force the minority to take a position that is not popular in, in debate, they're, they're essentially doing this as a mechanism of, of shaming. How do you shame people who have no shame? They don't care. Well, I don't think it's so much shaming as getting the American people to understand what's at stake. So, uh, you know, with the presumption that people will want to watch this. Right. And that the people who will want to watch this are, aren't, you know, we have like, I don't know, 70% of Republicans who now believe the election was stolen. So I don't know what you can do with them, but there's maybe a marginal number of people who are open-minded enough to watch the debate and see what it's about. But do they, the, the question I have is, do they even have access to that information? You know, you'll, if there is a, let's say that there is a vibrant and fulsome debate C-SPAN will cover it, NPR will cover it, some of the networks will cover it, maybe CNN and MSNBC will cover it, probably. Um, CNN will get easily distracted by a low-flying butterfly or something. But Fox News is going to show Tucker Carlson interviewing the pillow guy. Yeah, I, I understand that. And that's, 
that's really, we're in a bad place. We're in a bad place where he's the number one rated cable news show. And, you know, he's, um, you know, he's smart enough to know what he's doing and he's lying all the time and he's doing this thing about ask. I'm just asking questions. Right. You know, and uh, it's really obnoxious. Um, and I'm well, really, and, it's more and, obnoxious, it's dangerous. And and now he has the imprimatur of a court that dismissed a suit against Fox News for things he said, uh, saying that no reasonable person would think that he was actually using facts. That's right. Yeah. Which is great. Um, that That's his defense. Right. No reasonable person can think that I was not just being Tucker Carlson. <laughs> right. so, so that... That's fun. Well, a judge got... ruled that too, right? I mean, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. That's that. that's actually on a on a record in a trial somewhere. Wow, yeah. we've only got about a minute left. Closing thoughts on this? Well, um, we we live in a a very fraught, dangerous time, I think, and I'm quite I'm pretty nervous about where we're headed. Uh, we. Uh, we, you know, the, the January 6th, you thought was going to be, okay, that's the end of that, you know, <laughs> and instead it's, it's got just gotten worse and worse. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, now I love that the, um, you know, the Oath Keepers, uh, the head of the Oath Keepers was indicted for um, sedition conspiracy and 10 of their members. Uh, that's going to be, that shouldn't be very hard to prove because their oath is, yeah. I will overthrow the government. Yeah. Well, maybe that's some low hanging fruit. Al, that's all we have time for. Thank you for joining us. Al Franken is the host of the Al Franken Podcast with new episodes released on Sundays. You can find it wherever podcasts are available. He's the former U.S. Senator for the state of Minnesota. You can find Al online at alfranken.com and on Twitter at, at Al Franken. We'll put links to his website and social media under the episode notes on the show's website. Join us next time. We'll be talking about diversity and inclusion in the workplace. Business Disrupted is hosted by me, Ted Gavin. Our executive producer is Robert Cellino. Our audio engineer is Aaron, Aaron Keller, and Gabe is filling in, doing a wonderful job today. Our theme song and other original music are by the industrious Breakmaster Cylinder. Branding by Peg Fitzpatrick and PMG Group. PR and social media by Emily Stern and ABNC Creative. You can find episode guides, show notes, and sign up for our newsletter at our website at disrupted.business. Email your thoughts to contact at disrupted.business. You've been listening to Business Disrupted on Voice America Business and the World Talk Radio Network. Thank you for tuning in to Business Disrupted. Be sure to join Ted Gavin for another edition of the program and some more great stories next Monday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until we speak again, have a great week.